Hello and welcome to Ox Talks. I'm your host, Chris Oxley. And I invite you to follow me on an ever-evolving journey through the fascinating realms of psychology, leadership and neuroscience. While this podcast was originally crafted to cater to those navigating the intricate world of wealth management and private banking, I now view it as a personal odyssey, a chronicle of my captivating conversations with these particularly intriguing individuals. Together we'll unearth profound insights and priceless wisdom, igniting fresh passions that will drive growth and development in both our professional and personal lives. Inspired by the sheer wealth of knowledge and charisma in this field, my mission is to shine a spotlight on the curiously interesting individuals I'm privileged to encounter. And so I extend a warm welcome to all who share an interest in these subjects. Today's guest is Danielle Haig, Director and Principal Business Psychologist at DH Consulting. Danielle is currently a PhD candidate in professional practice in occupational psychology, has an MSc in occupational psychology and a BPS test user qualification. Danielle's background sits within counselling and business coaching, and she provides holistic and evidence-based solutions for anxiety, imposter syndrome, confidence and resilience issues. And today we get to dive into Danielle's specialist subject, the dark triad. The dark triad is a personality that's made up of three individual but overlapping personality traits. So it's comprised of psychopathy, narcissism and Machiavellianism. And you can find them in varying degrees in individuals who tend to, well, depending upon which degree of each personality trait that you get, um, you'll find them in very senior positions, find them in politics, and you might find them in prison as well. Yeah, I can imagine. And what, I mean, in terms of when we're, we're looking at this, and I know we've said before that you shouldn't be looking to self-diagnose, but what typically, if you're, if you're looking for these sorts of traits, what are you looking for? What, what, what should people be aware of or, or, or from that perspective? It, it is really interesting. You're absolutely right, Chris. I, and it is really important to always say this. I think Everyone is a psychologist to a degree, but not everybody has, uh, you know, the the ability to diagnose somebody because lots of people run around calling people narcissists or psychopaths or, you know, all sorts of different things. But actually they're not. They might just be a bit of an ass. You know, they, it doesn't mean that they have, um, you know, a diagnosable trait. They might just not be a very nice person. Of course, they may have that, those traits, but they may not. So it is really important that people don't, feel encouraged to start diagnosing uh, others. And indeed, self-diagnosis is also as um, dangerous. But um, with that aside, what does a dark triad look like? Well, it's really complex, as most things with personality. Um, With the dark triad, you get various degrees, the same as any kind of personality trait, the spectrums. And I always, when I kind of explain the dark triad, I always say, imagine you're making cake and you've got three key ingredients. So say, for example, you've got flour, water and eggs. And if you put a different mix, I'm not sure what kind of cake you'd make with that, but say if you put those in and you put a different um, measurement of each of them in, you're going to get a very different kind of cake on the outcome once it comes out the oven. And that's kind of the same as the dark triad. So you've got these three individual personality traits. So you could have a really high level of psychopathy 
a really low level of Machiavellianism and then, I don't know, a low level of narcissism. Or you might have really high narcissism, low psychopathy and somewhere in the middle when it comes to Machiavellianism, to put it in simplest terms. So you can really get a varying degree of dark triad. And of course, you've then got the nature versus nurture debate. So what some people might find interesting is that you could be born with psychopathic tendencies, but your upbringing and your surroundings means that you don't really explore that kind, that part of your personality so much. Whereas you could be born with um, some uh, tendencies towards psychopathy. And because of the environment that you grow up with uh, and the things that happen in your life, that becomes your major personality trait. So it really depends on lots of different things. So one, it depends on your genetics and then it depends on how you're raised and what's really encouraged um, in your personality to come out as a child and what you feel comfortable with. Um, so because of that, it's incredibly difficult because if, say, for example, you have someone who's really high on Machiavellianism, which is charisma, it's charm, it's long-term calculation, very strategic, they know just whose backs to scratch, and then they have some degree of narcissism and a little bit of psychopathy, you've probably got a politician on your hands. You know, someone who really wants power because that's what the Machiavelli wants. You know, I'm thinking like Boris Johnson style character, very charming, very charismatic. I've met him many times. He's very charming and he's very charismatic, extremely intelligent. I watched his debate with Mary Beard where they debated in Greek and Latin and it was just incredible. It was amazing. So super, super smart guy. Um, but think about how long it takes to become a senior politician the strategy, the calculated back scratching and knowledge gathering and who do you get on your side and when. I mean, it's, it's incredible when you think about the kind of brain that is required to want that power so much. So that's the kind of, you, you'll find politicians and I do work with senior politicians myself. Um, partly because of that, because I can speak their language and I kind of understand where they're coming from. So you might have a politician. Then you might have someone who is higher on the narcissism, higher on the psychopathy, and maybe not so high on Machiavellianism. We might find ourselves in the banking industry at this point, you know, maybe a hedge fund manager, because narcissists and psychopaths fit very well into, into the financial world because the narcissists need lots of money in order to show their grandiosity and to, um, you know, show off to other people and put on this massive peacocking display, which, um, you know, it, it requires increasing amounts of money in order to do that. And then the psychopathy, which means that you don't feel risk as much. So you're, um, you know, you're prepared to take financial risks that other people might not be prepared to take. So you've got this ego that needs feeding financially, so you're financially driven, but also you don't feel risk as much. And you have some calculated and, and charisma about you as well, which comes with the Machiavelli. So you might find someone in the financial world. Now, if you find someone with huge psychopathy, low narcissism or whatever narcissism and um, Machiavellianism, you're probably going to find someone who's maybe a gangster or in prison. There's a lot of information there. But if we were if we were looking for somebody just to take some snippets of information, what would if we could just name it so it's narcissism, macabellinum, psychopathy, what would be 
key traits for each one of those uh, and, and potentially positives and negatives? Just just a couple, just to keep us right so on, on the tracks. So I, I don't think, I think looking at them individually is where we kind of go wrong. I think you need to see it as a collective. So the overlapping trait that you will find is an inflated sense of grandiosity. So gr- like really confident. They are, um, you know, they really believe in themselves outwardly anyway. You know, it's very, very confident and they believe that they are better than other people. And they might not tell you that, but they believe it. And it kind of comes across in the way that they are. Um, they tend to be very charming when they want to be. They can switch the, their charm on in no time. If you know this person well and you think, how the hell have they just escalated their career so fast? How has this happened? Because I've worked with this person and I think they are awful to work with, but somehow they have like bypassed all the, the kind of the rings that other people have had to go through and all the rungs and they've just, their careers just escalated. That's because of their superficial charm. They are extremely good at charming superiors. Um, so they tend to have very fast trajectories in their careers. Um, they know exactly where they're going. They know how to do it. They come across very charming, but they will trample on anybody who gets in their way. And because they have this um, strategic calculation, I liken it to a poison arrow. You know, if they have someone's in their way, they will go for that person and they will get them out of the way. So, um, yeah, very calculated. Generally, if, if they are um, uh, successful, they're obviously going to be really intelligent and the intelligence really adds to the dark triad. So this is what you're looking for. Basically, they look like one person to someone and then another person, if you really know them, you think, gosh, they're like a horrible person. Very much kind of like a two-face. But I think that in the workplace, you're going to find it hard to really detect all the dark triads around you because they are so clever at hiding the dark side of their personality. And I think that's what's so interesting about them is that you just see the shiny brilliance on the outside. Um, and it's really generally only partners and people very close to them that will see the dark side of them because they, they're just brilliant. Uh, actors, basically. Interesting, interesting. One thing I've noticed is we've highlighted politicians, successful politicians. We've highlighted fund managers. This, this, this is sounding more like positive traits for those who are pushing on with careers or, or you know, they want to go somewhere. We, we always talk about the dark child as if these super negative individuals that we almost want out of society. But there, there seems to be a lot of positives here. If we if we take away. You know, the trampling on people, obviously that's not a, that's not a positive, sure. But to push, to be able to have that, what seems to be incredible levels of intelligence, high focus and drive, there's a lot of positives there. Are, the, are these good traits to have? Is that what we're saying or what, where are we? Well, I don't know. I mean, I've always been, I mean, I've always found the personality just so interesting because to me, I, I call my clients complex but brilliant. And that's exactly how I see them. You know, these are people who really, really change the way we work. They are risk takers, but with risk, we get reward and they push, you know, industries. They change so many different things with, with regards to how we function because they tend to get to positions of extreme power. People trust them. People really like them. Um, they are prepared to take a risk. And also they are very supportive of people who are in their close circle when it comes to 
um, their careers. Now, that's for one of two reasons. One, because it's really useful. You need a group of kind of like cheerleaders and people around you to kind of like protect you, keep you buoyant. Imagine it's like a, a ring um, when you're in a swimming pool and you've got like a big inflatable floaty. That's kind of what those people are to them. Uh, and, and they keep them uh, relevant. They're their cheerleaders. They protect them uh, and they support them. So it's brilliant. But also they benefit from them as well. Um, so they, lots of people really, really appreciate these people and they are brilliant in, um, in the right settings. But I, I, I always say we should lean into our dark side more. I think it's uh, a somewhat, uh, I don't know, I feel like the name dark triad just gives it a whole level of mysticism and darkness that don't, doesn't necessarily sit there. I just think it's a different personality. And I think there are always going to be people that you don't like in the workplace. And there's always going to be people that you um, you don't get along well with. But then there's also going to be this element of competitiveness and jealousy. And I think that is an element that leads into the dark triad that other people don't talk about very often. Because you've got these people that are charismatic. They seem to, you know, they make money, they're successful, their careers are going really well. People really like them. Their superiors like them. They're great at getting investments. They, you know, seem to live these really wonderful lives. And people don't like that very much, you know, especially if you're not living the same existence. People generally are naturally quite envious. So I feel like there's, uh, there's that projection onto the dark triad. But to be fair, we must realize that these people are derailers as well. So within an organization, for example, if you get on the wrong side of them, or if a business, uh, say, for example, an exec board um, goes against something that they want to do, they have been known to completely obliterate organizations. They will derail a business because they don't get their own way. And then therefore, obviously, that impacts hundreds, potentially thousands of people's lives because something just hasn't gone their way. So you can see how actually there's lots of things we can learn from them, um, but they can be very dangerous people. And in fact, I get hired into organizations to stop people derailing. So they'll say, you know, we've got a complex character. Can you come in and kind of soften this situation so that they don't derail our business, basically? Yeah. And that, that makes so much sense. It's almost, so the way my brain's sort of computing this is like, we've almost got a, a nuclear power, but what we don't want is a Chernobyl situation within a business, right? And I, I go through this a lot. And I think we spoke about this previously when, when we first had our sort of intro discussion was around, you know, we certainly feel like people nowadays, and I have to be really careful here, but hand over a lot of responsibility to the company that they work for and, and, and from that perspective and demand we need this, I need this safety and, and so on and so on. But at some point, there has to be a realization that it's it's down to an employee or an individual's responsibility on how they manage the information that's coming into them. And that might well be from somebody who's exhibiting high levels of dark triad personality traits. So when you're going in and you're diffusing these situations, are there are there certain tactics of how you, you know, you, you potentially address the individuals on the receiving end to help them be better prepared to work with these sorts of traits, as long as they're not, you know, going Chernobyl. But it, it, am I making sense here, what I'm getting at? Well, yeah, because it's the people around them that have to manage their the, the fallout and their behavior, basically, you know, the toxic waste. Um, if we're going to keep on with that uh, Chernobyl analogy, and and that is absolutely right, you know, people have to deal with this. Um, like think about PAs, think about you know other leaders, for example, 
who who report into say said character it there's a lot that you have to deal with they'll enjoy someone within the business and have favorites and there'll be little clubs and all sorts of things that will will happen within businesses that people don't respond well to and it makes life really uncomfortable for many people so yes absolutely part of the work isn't just working with the the said uh complex but brilliant character but also um, with the people who work with them. And so a lot of things come down to awareness. So, for example, it's understanding that this is why someone is behaving this way and actually it's nothing to do with you. And sometimes it's just really kind of a relief for people. They can take a bit of a breath when they realise okay, this isn't me that's causing this situation or, you know, this isn't for me to deal with. This is actually all on that person and that's why they behave in a certain way and that's why they're doing what they're doing. Generally also, it requires an individual's, perhaps their peers, to actually collectively improve their resilience and their strength against these people that if they're not going to leave the organization, if they're not being fired, if if they are there for good, maybe they own the business. Other leaders need to realize that one of the favorite strategies of the dark triad is um, divide and conquer. And so that leaves people second guessing themselves, feeling vulnerable, feeling isolated. And actually by creating peer groups around where they actually strengthen each other and they support one another, they can actually kind of balance out some of that behavior. So yeah, absolutely. There's lots of things that that we do to help the peers around said characters to actually kind of navigate it themselves. And of course, one of the things, interestingly, that I, I mean, I was telling you earlier, Chris, that when I first set up my business about eight years ago now, I think, I used to be on the speaker circuit a lot. Um, I, I set up my organization. I didn't have a client in sight. And um, I, I just thought, gosh, what on earth am I going to do? Where, why isn't everyone banging my door down? And then I got invited to do some talks. And then it just one talk led to another, to another, to another. And I ended up basically just living in members clubs in London, giving talks on the dark triad. And it was incredibly, incredibly popular. And that's how, how I built my business. But what I taught um, people in that session was I told them all about the dark triad. And then I said, but we can lean into our dark side. And the thing that I take away from them is their extraordinary resilience. They are some of the grittiest, most resilient people. I mean, if you think about some of the things that have been said about, like Donald Trump, for example, whether you agree or disagree with his politics, the man must be made of Teflon. Have you ever seen anyone who has been abused as much as he has, who's been through the ringer, and yet he still stands strong and proud and stands up? and is carrying on fighting. Now, that is a true dark triad trait because that man has a goal in mind and he is going for it. But having that goal, having the confidence and all of these different personality kind of attributes is what makes him so resilient. And I counter the, 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 the dark triad within an organization when I'm working with their counterparts or, or their peers is to help build up their resilience. So they almost lean into that, the dark triad themselves which is the resilient side. And that's what allows them to cope with these different personalities. Yeah, interesting, because I think resilience should be a key topic, especially with social media, the, the constant changes that we're seeing at the moment. Personally, I, I, I tend to take information from my circle around me as opposed to relying on the news. And, and I've certainly seen an uplift on you know, pe- people's general mental health. There's, there's been a decline there. And I think 
leaning into if, if you're set, if I'm getting this right, the dark triad side of things and really the resilient piece, the dark side's almost, if you like, is quite critical and, and we should be leaning into this and understanding more about the benefits of this side in, instead of what's popularly known as the dark triad being such a negative factor on individuals and, and that resilience is key. And so are there basic structures that you talk to people about that around how to, how to, you know, become a bit more resilient? We have um, a brilliant relationship with one of my favorite um, psychometric distributors and uh, they have a, a great resilient psychometric. So we always start with, with that because people really like to have a bit of a snapshot and some data a data point to kind of kickstart your your resilience relation uh, relationship build uh, your resilience building and um, so generally we start with that and then it all becomes tailored. So generally speaking, you see a lot of confidence issues, people not believing in what they want to to achieve. But the the the, the measurement that I go by um, it looks at four different areas of resilience. So control. Control means like how much do you believe in your control over your life? So an internal locus of control, as you'll know, Chris, as a, um, a psychologist, is when you believe in your abilities to shape your destiny. You're in control. You're autonomous of your life choices. Um, an external locus of control is, you know, I knew that wouldn't happen to me. I knew that I wouldn't be lucky enough to have this situation or, you know, I need to wear my lucky pants in order for this to happen or I didn't get up on the right side of the bed or, you know, kind of giving your your life away to external factors or external people. So does that. Control is a really important thing. Like how much do you believe in yourself and your ability to shape your life? Then there's confidence. So your interpersonal confidence, your confidence with other people, how you interact with others, and then your confidence in yourself, your self-efficacy, how much you believe in your abilities to do things and, and to actually get them done. So that leads to commitment. Do you actually set goals? And then another part of your brain that's required that's different setting goals is achieving goals. Like how gritty are you? How much do you want to achieve that goal? How much work are you prepared to put in and do you commit to it? And then there's challenge. So how do you perceive difficult things? Do you see them as an opportunity or do you see it as a, as a, a roadblock saying, no, not for me, I'm not going to take it on? So what I find interesting about that four quadrant measurement of, of resilience is that every single one of them is high on dark triad. The dark triad is high on those particular areas. So they believe in themselves. They believe they are the center of their own universe. They commit to what they want to do. They set goals and they go for them. So they are literally the epitome of resilience. So that's, um, that's why I find it so interesting to use because it's almost like you're countering the, the resilience of, of these leaders, but they are almost so resilient that they will walk over anyone or anything to get what they want. And if you're in the way, then, you know, you're not going to be feeling too happy about it. But what about if you taught your team to also level up to a higher level of resilience? Think about what you can achieve with an organization when you have a resilient team with maybe a dark triad at the spearhead. I mean, it's quite incredible, actually. I mean, also, obviously, bad things can happen, but brilliant things can happen as well, if tempered. Um, so, you know, everything's a risk and, and greatness is one of those things, you know, there's no, no risk, no reward. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, and I know we, we briefly touched on this at the beginning, but it's just popped up into my mind again a little bit. And we said about the nature nurture. And I'm wondering if, if these dark tribes, 
rates, can they increase, decrease as individuals go through their career? And how much of that is the career or the job that they're doing? And can it be affected by the personal situation? Like if all of a sudden they need to be earning substantially more money and then straight away then, you know, the people in front of them, they don't, they don't necessarily care about it and they'll trample to get to where they want to get, but they weren't originally like that. Is there, what, 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 what sort of different things can, can influence these and, and, and dial up and dial down the, um, the traits? I mean, that is a big question. So I work with, as I'm sure you can imagine, so I helped to build a, 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 a psychometric measuring the dark triad years and years ago, and we sold that to um, a, a commercial organization. And lots of people probably work and utilize the, these tests all the time in senior positions. And one of the things that we had to do is interview a lot of people who were incredibly successful business people, including C-suite, exec boards, entrepreneurs, politicians, all of those different things. And one thing that I will always believe about, generally about most people who push far, because of course we interviewed lots and lots of incredibly successful people who weren't dark triads as well. You know, it's not the only ingredient and the only way to become successful. But I would say that there is a general similarity with people who um, are very successful in life. If we think about career success, for example, or financial success and their self-made is they will have been through some trauma in their childhood. Something traumatic will have happened and that therefore becomes their fire that um, is their energy source to pursue whatever they believe is greatness. So that, to me, I would say is the biggest catalyst for success. Now, of course, lots of people go through trauma and they don't reach lofty heights of financial or business success. But I would say that the majority of people that I have worked with, of which there are hundreds and hundreds, all of them have some traumatic thing that they can pinpoint. And it can be horrible things that you're hearing from people. And then other, some things can happen and people perceive them as traumatic. And it's enough to be their fuel to, to, to the fire. So that I think is a really interesting point in itself to do with kind of like the similarities. But I think the differences are so broad. I think you're absolutely right though. But I would say the biggest thing that encourages dark triads to push and push and push is maybe they're very good liars. They manipulate, they lie, they'll con, they'll trick, they'll schmooze their way places. And the more successful they become at that, the more they do it. So remember at the beginning, I said about kind of like psychopaths, for example, you could be born with um, high psychopathic tendencies and be kind of controlled and restrained in such a way that it doesn't really manifest itself too much. Um, it might come out in little ways, but not dramatically. And then you could have a somewhat psychopathic tendency and it can be completely exasperated because of your upbringing. So for example, parents tend to not worry too much when their children lie about things. But interestingly, for a psychopath, a young psychopath or a young, uh, a young a child with psychopathic tendencies, that, that's almost like a breeding ground for testing the boundaries and learning to be a good liar. So the more they do it and the more it's accepted, the more they practice it. And then they push it further, further, further they get away with it because most of the time humans believe everything they hear. We don't really have the cognitive energy to digest and, uh, you know, 
be meticulous about every single piece of information that we hear. That's why we're so easy to sell to because we, we believe what we hear. So most psychopaths just push the boundaries that people with stronger morals and people who, um, don't, who fear risk and consequence, which the psychopath obviously doesn't do. And so they learn to be better and realize that actually they can get away with a lot of stuff. Yeah. And that, that makes so much sense. One of the interesting topics that I to come up with clients and you could say candidates as well is when I've noticed very much coming up more and more in the last few years is individuals who are at the earlier stages of their career are prepared to sacrifice very high quality opportunities that will lead to high levels of education, you know, working with some of the best people in the industry. They're willing to actually reject that in favor of a title, which might be, let's say, that doesn't have assistant in it. We could say wealth planner, for instance, and then we could add assistant wealth planner. They will, you know, automatically they're drawn to not having the assistant in their title and that connects to social media. So it's LinkedIn or being able to tell people within their social groups. And it doesn't seem to matter if they're giving up on their, what potentially they could be in 10 years, as long as they get that title now. There's a relationship there, right? Well, 100%. And I think also that the digital world has really impacted people's impulse control. I always talk about, say, for example, when I was young and say if I wanted to, like say I was 14, 15. So I lived in the outskirts of Birmingham. And if I wanted to buy a top, for example, um, and so I'd save up my money. And I'd go to, I'd see something in the shop and I'd be like, right, I want, I'm going to come back in a month when I've got my pocket money or if I saved up my money and I'll come back and um, I'll buy that top. And so I'd have to save up my money. I'd then have to get the train, get someone hopefully was home to drop me off at the train station to go into town. And then, you know, because fashion was so much slower then the same top would still be there probably for months. And I would treasure that item so much because... It had taken so long to get it and it would last for, you know, years. I'd be wearing this top and I'd love it and I'd treasure it. Now, there's so little boundaries um, to most things in life. You can access anything online or you can have food delivered within 20 minutes. You can have your clothes delivered the same day in London that you order. You can have all of these things are so instant that we've stopped being able to impulse control. So we want everything and we want it now. And, and it's interesting. I don't know if you've ever listened to, um, I can't remember the name, his name off the top of my head now, but the uh, Huff Labs, I think it's called. And he talks about the science behind all of this. And one of the most interesting series that I found fascinating is his discussion on dopamine. Because we always think of dopamine as like this brilliant kind of happy hormone that we get from, I don't know, a million Instagram likes or something. But actually, dopamine requires, a, it's, a, it's a hormone receptor and it requires a lot of fulfilling. So you need to fill up the bank all the time. Every time you kind of get a dopamine hit, you need to refill up the bank before you can get another dopamine hit. Because otherwise, what happens is, you if you don't fill up the bank of dopamine, you end up crashing. And actually, that's where addiction lies. Um, and I know that I'm, I'm talking through this really quickly, but the, the point of dopamine is that you get a dopamine hit after you've put effort in and learned something new and it's goal achieving 
um, it, it's a goal achieving drug. So it's actually there, a hormone, sorry, but it is like a drug, um, but it's a hormone that we get and is released when we've achieved something. And once you put the hard work in, that refills up your bank for your dopamine so that you can still get another high. But if you never fill up the bank and you're constantly chasing this dopamine high, that leads to addiction because you can never quite get there and you have to put the hard work in. So for example, when it comes to careers, now you're absolutely right. And I was talking to somebody else about this the other day, one of, one of the C, um, CROs I'm working with at the moment, they're going through a big transition within the organization. And they were just saying that, you know, every young grad they hire wants to be a director. And he's like, but I don't want a room full of directors. I want people who can do and get on with stuff and work hard and achieve things. I don't want people who just, the thing they ask about in the interview is like, when's my next promotion? And I think you said that to me as well, actually, or someone's, I've heard it a lot recently. It's this commonality, which is like, almost like people are addicted to the high. They're not prepared to put the hard work in to get there. And that, I think, comes down to our digital life, including social media. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree anymore. And, and again, it, it falls back into what we said earlier on um, in the conversation around we're handing over so much, you know, and I'm taking this back to the corporate side of things, but we hand over so much responsibility to corporate organizations now. We've got to take responsibility for ourselves and look after ourselves. And if you're not doing things like looking after yourself, the sort of food that you're eating, the exercise that you're taking, the sunlight, you know, all of those basic things that as human beings, we've over evolutionary times, we've, we've always, always had. So clearly it's a big part of what we are. If you're just ignoring those, you can't just continuously blame an employer for why you're unhappy because it's, there is always going to be challenging situations. And in the work environment, it is a challenging situation that you have to navigate. It's not easy you're, you know, you're, you're providing a service and, and, and receiving a reward for that. It's not going to be easy, especially when you go higher up the ladder and you do more complex or more roles with responsibility and looking after yourself is, is, is your own responsibility, not your employers. Exactly. I agree with that 100%. And the works that we do, when we do do wellbeing or larger projects with organizations, everything that we do is about empowering the individual. I am not about making people dependent upon other people. Um, and in fact, the way that we coach, the way that we do uh, our leadership training, the way we do everything is about making ourselves redundant because you want people to be able to stand on their own two feet. Resilience to me is absolutely fundamental for human joy. I think, I think without resilience, without feeling in control, without feeling like you have autonomy over your life and your choices, without making emotional decisions, um, you know, uh, being emotionally kind of agile instead of emotionally reactive, which is a choice about, you know, taking, as you said, your health responsibilities, all of those things. If something is stressing you out, then do something about it. Have a conversation. Everybody has the ability to do these things. And you're right, we hand over power all the time. And actually, the power we have within us is extraordinary. Brilliant, brilliant. Look, Danny, I, I've taken up quite a bit of your time here, and I, I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing your insights on these topics. I know we've, we've ventured off down some other avenues, but I've, it's, it's all super, super useful stuff. We'll make sure that there's um, a link to DH Consulting if you want to quickly just share how else other people might be able to get in contact with you for, for leadership development or so forth. Please go ahead. 
Absolutely. Um, I mean, just looking up DH Consulting on LinkedIn or Danielle Haig, um, and we always get back to, to our messages. And of course, uh, you can drop us an email at hello at daniellehaig.com, which is soon to change, actually, because we are becoming www.dh.consulting soon, but which is all very confusing, but we'll make it all work. But yeah, reach out any way you want. You can just Google us and we come up. It's been great fun. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure, Chris. I feel like we could just talk forever about these topics. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Ox Talks. It's an absolute privilege to explore the fascinating intersection of these fields with our incredible guests. And if you found inspiration in our conversation, I encourage you to not only subscribe to Ox Talks on your preferred podcast platform, but also to seek out and follow our guests too. Anticipation is already building for our next guest, and I sincerely hope you'll join us for the upcoming episode of Ox Talks. Thank you for being a part of the Ox Talks family, and we can't wait to have you with us again soon. Thank you.